Welcome to another CPA audio update. My name is Eric. I'm the communications specialist at the CPA. We've been talking about COVID-19 for a long time and the psychological impacts of it. Uh, Today, we're going to do something a little bit different, although COVID-19 is still part of the discussion. We've seen over the last few months that COVID-19 has disproportionately affected communities of color and especially black communities in North America. And adding on to that is the stress of seeing the murder of George Floyd and the realization that for many in this country and in the United States, black lives still don't matter. Joining me today is a special guest. I'm Dr. Helen Ofosi. I'm a working business psychologist. So in 2012, I founded IO Advisory Services. The IO comes from Industrial and Organizational Psychology, which is quite a big mouthful. But despite the fact that it's a clunky title, I certainly appreciate the foundation that it provides for providing HR consultations, career coaching, and more recently, executive coaching. I I find it's a good way to distinguish myself from most of the other people out there because it's such a unique niche. Yeah, I imagine it is. And so what is your day-to-day like? What do you help people do at their companies? Well, to be honest, I have two, basically I have two practices in one. So on the HR side, it could be helping organizations, whether it's government or private sector or even nonprofits, with their hiring processes and their promotions. Um, You know, for for instance, it could include um, helping people hire lawyers or economists or C-suite leaders, so it could be uh, executives, it could be executive directors, those kinds of things on the HR side. And certainly over the past maybe two to three years, I've been doing much more work um, in the whole space around workplace culture and making workplaces more healthy and less prone to incivility and harassment, those kinds of things. Right. That's the HR side, yeah. And then I also work with individuals. Sometimes they are individuals who come to me independently outside of their workplace. They're not coming to me and their workplace is supporting them. They're finding me independently and paying for my services out of pocket. And some of those folks are recent graduates who've done all the right things. But because of all kinds of structural changes in our economy, they are not gaining the traction or the results that they'd like. Uh, is that something that's been going on for a while, or are you referring just to the last uh, few months with the structural changes in our economy? Structural changes, I'd be talking about those going back to when I started. Mm-hmm. So going back to 2012, um, I, I think that when I graduated and most of my peers graduated from university, it was a rare thing to have a degree, especially an advanced degree, and not be able to find an appropriate job. But now there are a lot of people, whether they are sometimes engineers or lawyers or uh, economists or PhD holders who are underemployed. And sometimes they're recent grads. Sometimes they're people who've been in the workplace for a while and just have grown frustrated that they're not getting the the uh, rewards or the opportunities that they think they should be able to get. And a lot of that, uh, you know, I I see this a lot in the media and on social media and people 
like to talk about millennials as though they, you know, are shiftless and don't know what they're doing, but the opportunities presented to them are starkly different than they were for the generation before. And I think, uh, what, what you're saying really speaks to that. It's, you might have an advanced degree, but the opportunity that that once provided is not guaranteed anymore. Absolutely. And when they're faced with a lot of student debt, it's just a very grim prospect to have a debt that might as well be a mortgage with a very small income. It's just a terrible, terrible situation. Very discouraging. Mm-hmm. And so you help uh, people through that. And uh, when you do, uh, are you helping them find uh, a different type of employment? Are you helping them in that way? Or are you just uh, you helping them manage their expectations, I guess? No, I wouldn't say that I help them manage their expectations. Generally speaking, the folks who I'm working with are quite talented and could be doing a lot better. So I could help them with things like adjusting their networking and outreach strategies so that they're getting access to better opportunities. Um, certainly help them with resumes and cover letters and LinkedIn profiles if that's what they need. But uh, the bigger piece is helping them do better during interviews and identifying other ways where they could be using their same skills and abilities, but possibly in a different context or a different role, particularly with the people who have um, PhDs and have finally grown tired of um, trying, to, trying to get by on these part-time contract roles teaching courses at universities. That's uh, kind of one of those dirty little secrets that there's tons and tons of these people who have been trying to get elevated from postdocs into academic positions, and the opportunities just aren't there the way they were in years gone by. Yeah, I see that a lot with uh, especially people who graduate psychology, which is you know who, who I'm talking to now, where right. the... Hope is this, you know, straight ahead career path through academia that simply doesn't exist. So a lot of what we've been doing at the CPA is trying to highlight other um, job avenues that people can take. That was our psychology month uh, theme this year. People who do have a PhD but work in the government doing research or work at a video game company or that sort of thing. Amazing. That's such a tremendous service. I didn't even know that CPA was doing that. Oh, great. If you'd paid attention through the month of February. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we're done with it now. It, uh, you know, it ran its course, but uh, it's still up there. And I think we're going to bring it back at some point. It's, It's difficult to find the people who have graduated and gone on to work elsewhere. Uh, It's easy to find people who are working at universities. It's easy to find clinicians, but anybody who's doing something else uh, tends to be more difficult to track down and figure out where they are now. Right. Interesting. So you write a blog uh, for IO Advisory, and uh, I've been reading a few of your blog posts, and that's mostly what I wanted to talk to you about today. Um, but first I, I wanted to talk to you about the, you gave us a quote. So we're looking for quotes from, uh, people who work in the space of racism and a lot of the work that you do is racism in the workplace. And so we, I asked you for a quote uh, for a press release that we're hopefully going to be putting out in the next day or two. 
Uh, and in your quote, you said that in your graduate program, you were the only black student and that psychology has a real issue when it comes to representation for uh, people of color. And we just don't have enough psychologists uh, to be representative uh, for the general population. Do you have any idea why that is? Is that just a higher education problem in general? I am not entirely sure why that's still a problem that's persisting. I mean, I recognize that there's a huge bottleneck just getting from undergrad psychology programs to graduate programs. There are a lot of people who graduate with a psychology degree who have aspirations of doing grad studies. And I understand there just aren't enough places in graduate programs. So that's part of it. But I find it hard to believe that in this day and age, we still can't improve the, uh, the pipeline so that there are some people of color in most graduate departments and having some graduate students of color in most graduate departments. I don't think I had any other, um, well, there were certainly no black students in my program, whether it was my individual I.O. program versus clinical um, or neuropsych. There were no other black graduate students. I don't recall whether there were any Asian, and I don't think there were any Muslim or Aboriginal. And it took me two years to do my master's and four years to do the Ph.D. So in a span of six years, not seeing any diversity isn't a good sign. No, and it really isn't. No. And since graduating, and of course now I'm dating myself because I finished my Ph.D. in 99. But it is extremely rare for me to meet another psychologist who was trained in Canada who has a PhD or even a master's in psychology. Every now and again, somebody will reach out to me through LinkedIn. And I've had a few clients from other countries who have a background in IO psychology and come to me for various types of career-related support. So honestly, I, I, I'm not entirely sure what the issue is. It can't be purely that, that uh, people of color are not... Um, qualified for the programs. Well, I, I know. know mm -hmm. Yeah. Go ahead. You have, you oh, have a no. point? I, I was just going to say, I, I know that I mean, we're certainly looking at it right now and trying to figure out why this is. And I did see uh, some statistics uh, the British Psychological Society put out about uh, this same issue in Britain. And it looks like okay. it is the bottleneck that you're talking about. There are plenty of people of color who are in undergrad psych programs but when that bottleneck happens, it's moving up to the master's level, to the PhD level. And of course, this is in Britain, so we haven't looked at the statistics here in Canada yet. But uh, that seems to be where uh, either there's a glass ceiling that they uh, can't cross or that, you know, more white students are accepted into those positions than students of color uh, or there's another reason and they leave for a different reason at that point. So they're trying to figure now, that out as well. Part of what I think the issue is, is that, <clears throat> excuse me, just like in other areas of the, of, of the workplace and uh, other opportunities, sometimes you need to know what the expectations are above and beyond what's written. 
so that you can prepare your application appropriately and get screened in. Mm-hmm. Right? So the fact that there aren't many racialized psychology professors might create a bigger gap so that racialized students aren't necessarily mentored to the same extent that the white students are. And that so not understanding the gaps between what's stated on websites and in application materials versus what somebody needs to do to get in, not just in terms of grades and good um, GRE scores, but also having done the right kinds of other things over the years to make them more competitive to get in. I suspect that's part of it. And, you know, I'm, I'm now reflecting on the fact that I had one thing that many racialized students didn't have. Both of my parents were academics. Right. And that's not a very typical situation. doesn't matter what race you are. So I suspect that just that probably gave me some insights about what I needed to do to uh, put a good application together. Yeah, that that makes sense. That uh, absolutely could be. Uh, now, you did say also in your statement here, in your quote, uh, that the dual crises of COVID and anti-black racism that we're facing at the moment uh, have really highlighted the need for more black psychologists. And I'm wondering if you could just uh, talk to me a little bit about the importance of representation in the profession. Is it that when somebody, uh, a black person wants to reach out for psychological assistance, that they want to be able to do it with somebody who uh, shares a similar uh, background and culture? I, I definitely think there is something to be said about having that lived experience of somebody who's already struggling because <clears throat> maybe their employment has been threatened by COVID-19, maybe their business is struggling because of COVID-19, and now they're also dealing with reminders about all the uh, racial issues that have been hurting them over the years. It gets easier if you don't have to explain the racial context. You don't right. have to explain all of that trauma and all those other things that go along with it. And I suppose that that's part of the discussion too, right? You hear a lot of the time uh, that, you know, and I recognize the irony in me speaking to you about it right now, but it's asking black people to do a lot of the explanations, right? To do the heavy lifting of explaining to the rest of society, this is why we are upset about this. This is why it weighs heavily on me. Now my dogs are upset about it too. Nice. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> they think someone's at the door. No one's been at the door for three months. So I, I don't know what they're doing. Um, but, you know, and, and that becomes part of the part of the uh, conversation is, you know, let's do the research ourselves so that we're not asking, you know, black people to hold shoulder all the burden of, of explaining it to everybody. But in a small microcosm, I, sub I imagine it is like that with psychology as well. You want somebody who doesn't need to have that conversation. That would be ideal. And honestly, I believe that's part of why psychotherapists are probably the ones who most racialized people are reaching out to. Because from what I've seen, there's much better representation among registered psychotherapists. And since they are now finding ways to be able to build insurance to provide mental health services, 
I'm sure that's just creating a lot of opportunities. But I sure wish uh, psychology would find ways to be more inclusive because, frankly, there are so many big challenges that we're faced with. And, you know, research and experience has shown me that having more perspectives at the table with different um, different lived histories and different approaches gives you insights you can't get otherwise. So it's a shame that in some respects, psychology's narrow focus may lead them kind of out of it, like out of the, uh, left out of the solution. Well, hopefully we start moving toward a much more diverse coalition and uh, get some of those voices to the table that up until now haven't been there. Uh, now, I do want to talk about uh, your blog, and specifically I was reading the one you wrote about sensitivity training and the notion okay. of how it really doesn't work, uh, that we call it a bunch of different things and maybe we call it anti-racism training, uh, but that in the end the results from it simply aren't there the way that companies want them to be, that presumably employees want them to be. And I'm wondering if you think there's a way to do it differently that could work. Well, I, I really do agree with you. I think that trying to teach people to be less racist is kind of similar to trying to teach people to be less friendly. Either you right. are or you aren't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's not really... Um, I don't think that's really the approach. I think really it's more about looking at anti-racism approaches um, in terms of looking at organizations to uh, really drill down and evaluate the systematic um, racial biases that are, are hurting our organizations. So looking at policies, looking at structures, looking at workplace cultures, um, hiring practices, um, trying to eliminate certain biases in, in recruitment and selection and promotion processes. Those are the kinds of things that are more appropriate because I don't think that the sensitivity training is really the issue. I would actually argue that the real bad actors know exactly what they're doing. That's why they often use coded language and dog whistles. They know exactly what they're saying and they know how to say it more tactfully and diplomatically so that they can hide behind those uh, those dog whistles. Right, and then they have some sort of plausible deniability. You know, That's I can't help it if you took it that way. I'm, yeah, I, yeah. I, I get that. So I guess what you're saying, if, if I can paraphrase, tell me if mm -hmm. I'm getting this wrong, is that putting your employees through sensitivity training is sort of a way for management to say we're doing something and hiring someone outside, trying to change the culture through a process that doesn't really involve the structural change that the management itself usually would need to make in order to make that workplace better. That's what I would guess. I think that's a very good paraphrase. I oh. mean, I think it's, it's still worth doing possibly in lunch and learns for people who are curious. But if you want to make real lasting change, you really do need to think about how are you recruiting people? How are you hiring people? Who are you promoting? Who are you giving access to professional development? Who's getting all of the interesting work assignments and projects? 
right? So mm-hmm. those are the, uh, the more meaningful issues. Now, you also wrote a blog and, and talked about quick-acting leadership. So we're talking about the leadership of companies here. And your example in the blog was ABC, who fired Roseanne immediately once she had put out some racist tweets and, you know, acted very quickly and was willing to cancel a show altogether uh, because the star of that show did something extremely offensive. And I'm mm-hmm. wondering if uh, that sort of quick action is possible when you're doing a structural change in the way you approach your your business? Or is it just a reaction to an immediate uh, incident where you need to do some damage control? Well, I think there's room for both. So, for instance, right now we're seeing this huge human rights and civil rights movement in response to the murder of George Floyd. And I suspect that if that police department had acted more appropriately and quicker and wasn't tone deaf and had actually held those officers to account instead of putting them on some kind of administrative leave where they're still getting paid, it would have probably prevented the huge uprising that we're seeing now. But the fact is that You know, there really wasn't much recognition for the fact that these people committed murder on camera Mm -hmm. and really weren't, you know, there really wasn't much leadership. Or maybe there was leadership, but it was the kind of leadership that doesn't really align with human rights and uh, civil rights. Yeah, and I would say... There's room for the fast-acting stuff, but really the bigger issue is recognizing that if there were real fairness, and merit being recognized in most workplaces, then the people who are doing great work would actually be recognized and rewarded. And you wouldn't see such uh, a disparity between the diversity at the entry level versus the diversity in the C-suite. Right. Now, I would say, though, about uh, in Minneapolis, it appeared at first as though the police department had acted quickly, because they they actually did fire those four officers immediately. And it looked like fast action. But when you go back and look at it, it was only after the tape had come out. Before that, what they had done was file a really, you know, insincere and misleading police report about the incident and what had happened. And right. so in order to get that systemic change that people are, are looking for, now you've got the Minneapolis City Council trying to disband that police force altogether because it looks like they've gone so far that there's no there's no fixing it internally. I, I find that whole situation fascinating. I was curious when I started hearing about defunding. And now I understand that what they really mean is that just as now when you call 911, you might get a fire truck showing up at your place if that's what you need, or you might get an ambulance if you need medical help versus the police officer if it's some kind of a break-in or that kind of an issue. So what what I think they're suggesting is adding additional services so that when police are not the appropriate intervention, they send the right thing. So, you know, recently in Toronto, we had that uh, young woman who was uh, murdered or pushed off her um, balcony, and it was a mental health-related issue. If they had sent 
perhaps an officer with a social worker or somebody trained to uh, recognize those kinds of issues and had a different approach, we probably would have had a much different outcome. No doubt. And it looks as though, you know, a huge number of violent incidents involving police stem from a mental health issue and not anything else. Uh, Something that could have been prevented had they sent somebody else who was specifically trained to deal with that situation. And I think we're asking police to do a lot of things that really aren't the purview of of what we initially imagined police to be, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. Dealing with homeless people, dealing with uh, mental health breakdowns, uh, with people, you know, acting out on the street, doing, you know, whatever it might be. And to send the police is just... It is an overreaction, but it's also the only reaction that we're set up to provide at the moment. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm I'm grateful for this opportunity to have these discussions about figuring out when to send which kind of intervention, because you know not every tool needs a hammer, right? Right. Or not every situation or whatever needs a hammer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And. You know, I'm glad that these discussions are being had, and I like having them too. Uh, that brings me to another blog post of yours. And I wanted to make a distinction between politics and values. Because you, okay. um, you said it was impolite to discuss politics at work, or at least it seems like that's uh, the common notion. You don't discuss politics at work. And Unfortunately, these discussions, I think, start off as values discussions and end up becoming political discussions. You know, do you really want to defund the police and what does that mean and that sort of thing? And it becomes a political issue when, in fact, it's one would hope that it wouldn't be something where you would take political sides, but just a human rights side in general. Right. Um, Right. So is discussing politics at work actually impolite or is it just fraught? Is it... uh, something that could go wrong. I think your your characterization is right. Uh, it is fraught. And I don't know how we got to a point where we can't talk about values without them becoming political. Because really and truly, there's nothing that says that being a Republican or, a, or in Canada a conservative means you have to be aligned with the alt-right. Right? Right. That's, that's, not, that's, that's not a fair characterization. And by the same token, being a liberal or a Democrat doesn't have to mean you're, I don't know, soft on crime or uh, anything else. But somehow we've gotten to a point where things have become so polarized that that's how things end up being discussed. And really the point of my blog wasn't so much that... Um, it's about talking about politics or, or religion at work, but rather the fact that when horrible things are happening in the world and people don't say anything at work, whether it's the leaders or the peers or the colleagues, it's hard for people to understand where they sit and where, where their, their coworkers and employers uh, you know, value them. So, for instance, right now, with all of this happening about the differential impact of COVID-19 or the dreadful human rights issues that are being highlighted by the protests, saying nothing makes people wonder, well, does that mean you support 
the killing of unarmed people? Does that mean you support structural racism? Of course not. Right. So it's more about finding ways to talk about what's happening so that colleagues and coworkers feel supported and understood rather than being drawn into the politics of it. And, and also trying to uh, not hide behind, sorry, not, not hide behind that motherhood statement of not discussing politics or religion at work. It's not about the religion. It's not about the politics. It's really about creating an environment where people feel respected and valued and understood and welcome. And I, I wonder a lot if the reason that you know, and I've been in these discussions at workplaces before where it does get heated and it does get very political and mm-hmm. people really dig their heels in and take sides on something. And I feel like a lot of that has come from social media because when people do have that heated discussion in person, it tends to have, they're bringing up a lot of the things that they've seen on Facebook that are maybe conspiracy theories that are, you know, factually questionable but they believe it enough to bring it into you know offline you know offline into a personal discussion about something do you think that has made it worse i suspect you're right and i i I do think you're onto something and i remember you know hearing some years ago when there was the uh the issue about the hacking scandals and the all the, all the controversy around the last U.S. election and how there were a lot of bad actors and fake social media accounts that were there to sort of sow dissent and inflame and polarize conversations, mm-hmm. right? So I'm, I'm sure that there is something to be said about those things being somewhat intentional by bad actors and sometimes other people kind of get drawn into it, and before they know it, they're repeating things, and it's it's just a mess. And I gotta say, I'm I'm kind of grateful in retrospect that over these past years, I haven't been in the regular workplace. Yeah. Because these conversations can be dreadful. <laughs> yes. And stressful. Yeah, they very but, much can. Yeah. So I I really don't I don't. Uh, admire having to have these discussions but but certainly i think that sometimes being silent sends the wrong message to the people who are really hurting because of what's going on so some years ago there was the whole um islamophobia and the niqab debate Mm -hmm. that was very painful for a lot of muslim people or people who looked like they could be muslim because they had darker skin right Right, and for a while there was a lot of uh, angst and uh, racism against Asian people because of the coronavirus and people making unreasonable attributions. And now we've shifted, and there's a lot of attention around anti-black racism. So it's just a very complicated time to be in any workplace where these issues are either being ignored, even even though they're on the minds of a lot of people, or they're being discussed in a way that just makes certain people feel even more isolated and unwelcome. So somebody comes to you and says, I'm going into my workplace and nobody is talking about this. And because no one's talking about this, 
all I can think of is then they tacitly support it, and that makes me feel uh, out of place in my office. What would you tell that person? Well, often when I'm having those conversations with people, they are already on a stress leave or they're trying to work from home as often as they can. And I sometimes just encourage them to try to ride things out until they can find another workplace that's more more inclusive, more respectful, because it's exhausting to work in that kind of an environment. No doubt. Now, you say that sometimes they're trying to work from home as often as possible. Now everyone's working from home pretty much all the time. Uh, Do you think that improves things or does it just mask them? Well, I think it's giving some people an opportunity to have a bigger buffer and they're grateful for it. The number of black people over the past two or three weeks who said, man, I'm glad I'm working from home right now. I don't think I have the capacity to explain to some people why these things are bothering me. So right. I'm, I'm certain that some people are, you know, this is a huge silver lining for some people to be able to work from home for the long term. And there are certainly others who are realizing when they are working from home that they don't want to go back to that workplace. So they're kind of thinking, well, gee, how do I reposition myself so that at some point in the future when there's a vaccine or a treatment, I can work somewhere else. Right. You know, because they've had that, that, that break from a very difficult or toxic work environment, and they're grateful to be away from it, and they just don't want to go back. And I think this might be an opportunity on the other end as well, where the corporate structures of a lot of companies have an opportunity to alter the way that structure works before everyone comes back. Um, and maybe have an opportunity to really take a look at their practices. And as you were saying, you know, who gets promoted, who gets the plum assignment, who gets, uh, you know, moved up in the company and gets the accolades. And maybe they have an opportunity to really look at that at the moment with, uh, you know, with no actual physical structure to the office. I think you're on to something. And I suspect that in many organizations where, because of all of the uh, financial consequences of COVID-19, they have thinner margins. So they're going to be finally noticing that certain people are doing like so much amazing work, but had been not really recognized. But now that all of the other bells and whistles have been kind of stripped bare, and you can see who's contributing what, it may be an opportunity to start recognizing all those quiet doers who've been, you know, punching above their weight all this time. In In addition to, you know, looking at the broader issues that have been kind of highlighted by this dual, um, this dual crisis. Yeah. I, I would hope that this is an opportunity for many corporate structures to take a look at the way they do those things and and as you say realize who the people are who are punch, punching above their weight and and doing the bulk of the work that goes unnoticed the rest of the time uh now i have one last question for you and you wrote a you wrote a blog post about uh you use the term covering 
at work. Uh, and you were talking about how basically you'd be one person at home, but you'd be somebody else in the office and how that can take a real toll on you by, you know, creating two different personas, one real one and one fake work persona. And I'm wondering mm-hmm. if you could just tell me a little bit more about that, that notion in general. Yeah, I wish I had come up with it. It's actually a, a phrase that I found in a white paper written by Deloitte. And the gist of it is that there are certain people, in fact, almost uh, maybe 65, 70% of most workplaces where people are covering up something about themselves that they don't feel is welcome. So it could be downplaying the fact that they have a, a religious religious affiliation that's you know, less common, or downplaying elements of themselves that they don't think are welcome. Like if you're a black person and there are lots of anti-black stereotypes, you may downplay that affiliation. Um, if you're an LBGTQ person, you may be keeping that quiet because you recognize there's a lot of homophobic jokes going around. So the gist of it is that there are lots of people for different reasons that are covering up elements of themselves to make themselves blend in better at work. And the implication is that all of the mental energy that's going into hiding these aspects of ourselves is energy that's taken away from our work. Right. So, right? So it's hurting, um, it's hurting creativity, it's hurting productivity, it's probably creating some disengagement. And all of these things are the opposite of what goes towards creating a high-functioning, productive workplace. Mm-hmm. That makes yeah, sense. So I wish I could take credit for it, but I, I read <laughs> it and I thought I'd write about it. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was, it was great. It was interesting to read. And when I read it, I, I thought... You know, my wife is always telling me that when I talk to my mom, especially on the phone, I'm a totally different person than I am talking to anyone else at any time. And I thought, maybe that's the same thing. Maybe it's the, you know, I swear less and I talk about fruit more and, you know, that kind of thing when I'm talking to my mom. Uh, But I don't imagine it is the same thing because you're not really, I'm not suppressing a part of myself. I'm just highlighting the parts my mom cares to hear about. That's it. And the other piece that I hadn't appreciated until I read that report by Deloitte was that there are lots of people who, because of their affiliation with somebody who might be Muslim or Black or whatever, those people are also covering at work. So, you know, when you add them all up, it's a huge percentage of the population. Hmm. Uh, and mm-hmm. what do you mean affiliated with? Like uh, you're married to somebody? Uh... Exactly. You're married to uh, you know, a black person or you have a child who's lesbian or gay or trans. Those kinds of uh, affiliations so that you know, you're, you're closely identified with one of these groups that is obviously unwelcome. And do you think that... If you're in that situation, if I go into work and I have a gay son and I'm afraid that if I speak about it at work, uh, people will take it the wrong way, they'll look at me differently, uh, so I'm hiding it for now. Do you think it's better to just 
decide I'm not going to hide this anymore and I'm going to come out and say this is who I am, this is who my family is, or uh, if I feel that way, do you think that it's the workplace culture that's causing me to feel that way and that I should probably move on to a more accepting place? I tend to believe that it's more of the workplace culture and it's more systemic. Mm-hmm. And and I, I, as much as I hate having to hide anything, I would sooner see somebody move on instead of trying to be who they really are at work and then things become even worse. Right. You know, because I've seen the impact of, of racism against Indigenous people, black people, Muslim people, Jewish people in particular, and gay people. Mm -hmm. And these things are agony. And of course, the way things operate, nobody really wants to um, be a witness to that or be involved in any lawsuits or discrimination suits. So often that person who's suffering is kind of on their own. Right, right. It is misery. So yeah. I, I would sooner help that person find a new spot somewhere, somewhere different, somewhere that would respect them and value what they can contribute rather than something that should be as irrelevant as, you know, the hair color or their eye color. Right. Well, and here's hoping that uh, this pandemic and this current situation with George Floyd and protests and the rise in awareness of systemic racism, which I think we haven't really seen before on this level. You know, before there were marches in Ferguson and there were all kinds of protests surrounding the killing of Eric Garner and and a whole lot of that about eight years ago, but that Mm -hmm. really focused on the police. And I think now we have a little bit more of a focus on the systems and maybe we can recognize those systems in our own workplaces, in our own jobs and employment. Absolutely, and even in our schools. Yeah. Right, I mean, the grad school piece is uh, something we address, but it's similar issues in elementary schools and high schools. Yeah, and with all the students not in school at the moment, maybe, uh, maybe there's an opportunity to take a look at that as well. Well, that's it. These are big issues, and I really, honestly, I kind of wish I was a university professor or a grad student right now because it's such a rich context to do meaningful applied research. (laughs) Yeah, it really is, isn't it? Well, I I have seen that there's quite a bit of research uh, either starting or continuing in this vein at the moment. And uh, here's hoping that we have a whole lot of studies that we can mobilize uh, within the next few weeks, months, years that change the way the whole system works. I would love it. So would I. Dr. Helen Ofosu, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me about this today. Uh, I really appreciate your time. It's been a, a real pleasure for me as well, Eric. Thanks so much.